Amen. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in Samuel, um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Uh, but there is a major uh, cultural hurdle that we have to overcome as we approach this passage. Now, uh, what do I mean by that? There's, a, there's often cultural hurdles as we encounter the Bible because we're looking at a time that is uh, in the past and a culture that is not our own. Um, there's a lot of things that might be different uh, from where we are today. And in today's passage, um, notice our series is kind of subtitled, A Kingdom Rises. Um, and so there's about this kingdom, uh, and so far there's not been a kingdom. But today we're going to see the beginnings of that because we see in our passage today, Israel tells, uh, the people of Israel tell Samuel to give us a king. Uh, and that's the title of our sermon this morning, Give Us a King. And that's a little bit backwards for us uh, because we live in a country that was founded on rejecting a king. Or like, we want that king out of here. We don't want him to be oppressing us anymore. You know, we, we can't deal with it. So we, we got rid of the king. So for us to understand why uh, people would ask for a king and be beg begging for a king, demanding a king, we got to kind of get our minds around where would they be coming from? What do they hope that this king will do? So what, why did they want a king? Well, first of all, having a king gave them status. Serious nations had kings in this place and time. And Israel, you know, probably had kind of that like younger brother complex kind of thing. The, the little brother complex of, uh, you know, when they had come into Egypt, they were just a kind of a family, really. They're a pretty small group of people coming out of Egypt. They were the size of a nation, but they were all former slaves. So they didn't feel like they had status, right? And then they had to like wander in the wilderness for all this time. And then they had to fight their way into the promised land with God's help. God helped them to defeat these nations before them. Uh, and now they've been dwelling in the promised land for quite a while, but they don't really have the status of a real nation because they don't have a king. They need that king to give them status and representation. The king would also give them representation, meaning that king would represent them to other nations, right? If another nation came they would send delegates, they'd be from the palace of that nation, and they'd come to the Israelites and say, you know, hey, we want to meet with your king. Where's he at? And they'd go, oh, uh, okay, then your leader. Who's your leader? Um, uh, right? there, there's no obvious person, right? The judges aren't really representatives in that way. They're hearing cases, but they're not leading the people in the same way. The priests aren't really the leaders because they're just kind of facilitating this relationship between Israel and Yahweh. So they didn't have a good representation of the nation and in the form of a person. A king would give them that representation. The king would also allow them to form treaties. Marriage between uh, royal, the royalty of nations was a way of, seek, of making peace. Right? That you'd say, hey, if I, you know, maybe I'll take my daughter, will marry the son of the king over in this neighboring nation. And then if they're married, then maybe we won't have war because we'll be in-laws. And in-laws never have any conflict. So that will, that will go super well. Right? That, that's the idea. The king would also be a physical manifestation of God's authority on earth. 
God himself was meant to be Israel's king, but they wanted something more tangible. And that's what it would be. That's what the, the design would be. I mean, scripture itself tells us that authority structures on earth have been put in place by God and thereby represent his authority. And so saying if they had a king, he would be a representation of God's authority. Because that was not what they were meant to have. They were not meant to have a king. They were meant that God would be their king. They had his law. They had people to, uh, to execute justice, to hear cases and, and render verdicts. They had the priests to uh, deal with sin and, and, all of the, uh, and all of their errors that they might make. They weren't meant to have a king, but they, in this passage we're going to see today, they're going to demand one. They're going to say, give us a king. We'll look first at verses 1 through 9 in chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you and your, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. So Samuel and sons. Samuel had become too old to continue his judging circuit, right? And these people even tell him, imagine a whole group of people coming to tell you, you're old. And that's what happens here. You are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons, they had set up their court in Beersheba, which is in the south uh, of Israel. The southern tip of Israel is really what was represented as the farthest south you would go. Now, there were things further south than that, but that was kind of the, the, the town you would mark if you were going to say the bottom, like the, the southern tip. And that's where his sons set up their court. Samuel's still going on his judging circuit, but his circuit is, is much further to the north. It really never gets down south like that. So Practically, it's a good place for them to set up, spread out where people could go. They don't have to go so far up. Beersheba, by the way, means well of the seven, and it refers to uh, Abraham's agreement with Abimelech in Genesis 21 to protect Abraham's right to water in the region. Uh, it's also a crossroads of travel between uh, to and from Egypt. So in addition to... Uh, so, so Joel, Joel and Samuel were not like, uh, Joel and Abijah were not like Samuel. They take bribes and thereby pervert justice. Right? They seem to not be doing the job well. Now, the question that, we, uh, that I would hope springs to mind based on what we've been through so far in 1 Samuel should be, did Samuel commit the same error as Eli? Right? We looked at in the beginning of this, of this book, we looked at Eli and his sons, and his sons were priests. He was a priest, so his sons were priests. And 
Eli did not discipline his sons, and they started to take more than was their due uh, of the sacrifices. They started to sleep with the women who served in the temple, and, and God rebukes Eli. He rebukes him multiple times, warns him that judgment is coming, and it ultimately ends up in their death at war, and Eli's death upon hearing the news of it. Is Samuel doing the same thing? We might assume so, but if we look at the text and what is the scripture telling us, it, there are some differences. Right? First off, Eli and his sons, they're living and serving in the same place. They're there together. They're still living together, in, if not in the same household, certainly like their neighbors. And they're working there. Eli is seeing everything they're doing and he's doing nothing about it. He's hearing reports from people. He's doing nothing about it. Samuel's sons, on the other hand, they had relocated far to the south, far away from where uh, Samuel was. It could very well be that he had trained them well, that they had, you know, he'd, he'd gone through, okay, what do you do in various situations, trained them to be judges, and they knew what to do. And so he sent them off, they went down there, and now all of a sudden they're acting corruptly. And, and he didn't maybe even know what was happening until this point. We don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But it's also possible that Samuel was, even if he wanted to remove them, it's possible that he was unable to remove them from their positions once they were installed and accepted by the community in that place. It's very possible that even if he went down there, they would have just rejected him and said, no, we've got it all set up here and all the people are, are accepting our, uh, us as judges. It's hard to say. But one thing that we know for sure is that God never confronts Samuel about it. He never confronts Samuel. We never see him confront Samuel. He warned Eli multiple times, but he never says anything to Samuel about it. It's also possible that these claims are unfounded. One of the things we can notice from this passage, if we look at it, is the people who are bringing these complaints have an agenda. Right? They, they don't say exactly what the offenses were. They don't say how they're perverting justice. They, they claim that they're taking bribes, but there's no no evidence given necessarily. But the motivation for bringing the complaint is made obvious very quickly because the elders, they want to use this claim as grounds for asking for a king, which is not the obvious solution to this problem. If you think about it, if you go, hey, these judges are corrupt, these judges are corrupt, what would be the most obvious thing to ask for? Remove them and get some new judges. Samuel, we need some new judges. You need to train some people up, men and women who are righteous and who will do the right thing and will act justly, and your sons are not it, so let's remove them. Let's get some new judges in here. It's what Israel has done the entire time they've been in the promised land. But what do they do? They say, your sons are corrupt, so give us a king. That's an agenda. Right? They have that already as their desire. They're using this occasion to justify that request. But they already knew what they wanted. That's why they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel's displeased with the request, so he brings it to God. He's really modeling the way that we should deal with these kind of frustrating and difficult situations is he, he brings it to God in prayer. He says, like, can you believe what they're asking? Look what they're, they're telling me. He's upset. And he's feeling rejected, right? We know that from God's response, that God tells him, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
God sympathizes with Samuel. He says, oh, you're feeling rejected by this. You're feeling disappointed maybe in your sons and the fact that, that they're not following in your ways. You're feeling rejected by the people that they don't want. They want a whole new, you did such a bad job at this system of government that they want a whole new system of government. Imagine. Here's what I found. I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> they, they want a, a whole new system of government. Samuel's feeling rejected. He's feeling bad about this, this situation. But God assures Samuel that is God who is being rejected, not Samuel. So see, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me from being king over them. And as messengers of the gospel, that is true for us as well. This is a message that God gives to us as well. Jesus says as much in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. God tells Samuel not to take the rejection personally, and God tells us the same thing. That if we are rejected, if we are persecuted because of the gospel, because we're representing Jesus well, then we are with him in that. It rejected him first. If the world hates you, recognize it hated me first. And if what we're doing is representing Jesus and then getting rejected, it's God that's being rejected, not us. When we take the gospel to someone and they reject it, it's God who's being rejected, not us. And that's an important thing to, to, to remember and take hold of. Now, if the world hates you because you're just a jerk, that's not the same thing. Okay? And I say that because Christians get confused with that sometimes. Sometimes there's Christians out there just acting like jerks and, and being mean to people and then being like, yeah, I'm, be, I'm being persecuted just like Jesus. Um, you're arguing with a customer service agent. That's not the same thing. Okay? Those aren't the same things. Sometimes we have to make sure we're clear on that. But when we are rejected because of the gospel, we recognize that it's God being rejected, not us. We're in good company. We'll look lastly here, or we'll look next here at verses 10 through 18, where Samuel is going to give them a warning, the warning that God asked him to give. He says, you can listen to them, but you need to be responsible and warn them first. Warn them about what will happen if, uh, if they go through with this. Verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots he will, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. 
And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. So God explains to them what will happen when you have a king. You can, you can have a king, but here's what's going to happen when you have that king. He's going to draft an army. He talks about chariots and horsemen and people to run before the chariots. He's talking about a military. He's saying he's going to draft an army and the infrastructure from an army. People to even build the chariots. People to command uh, these, uh, these battalions and things like that. He's going to conscript farmers and laborers for himself. He's going to acquire palace staff. He's going to use eminent domain to acquire lands. He's going to tax the people, 10%. He will become oppressive. And when that happens, if they choose to have a king, they will regret it, and God will not help them. That's what's being said here. And this should be instructive for us. It should be instructive for us that sometimes God says, I'll give you what you want, but it's not necessarily going to go well. And when, that, when you're then dealing with those consequences, not going to come rescue you. Sometimes that's the situations we get ourselves in. Now, God had actually predicted Israel's request for a king. In the law of Moses, we find provisions for what will happen when they ask for a king. God knew it was coming. We see in Deuteronomy 17, these instructions. He says, when you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the book of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes in doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so he may not continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so God permits them to set a king over themselves, but it was not his ideal. That if they're going to, there are qualifications. If, they, if they're going to have a king, the qualifications are it's got to be a native Israelite and God gets to choose. He says, you can set a king over you who God will choose. It's God's choice, not theirs. Then when they have a king, he's got some laws for just the king himself. I'm going to go to the next slide. The laws for Israel's king are that he cannot acquire three things. He can't acquire many horses, many wives, or excessive silver and gold. Now, why those three things? Why those three things? Well, the many horses is about military power. That would be the primary means of having a military power, having chariots and horsemen. That's what you need to have a powerful military at this day and age. And so you can't acquire many horses because you need to have a reasonable-sized military. Why? Because it's protection. 
right? The, he, needs that, he needs the king should remain dependent on God, on God for protection. He shouldn't amass such a large military that he no longer needs to trust in God or doesn't feel he needs to. Because if he can get a big enough military and go, hey, bring it on. You know, the other nations, bring it on. I got a big, mil- I got a big army. I can, we can take care of ourselves. We're highly trained. We've got all these horses. We're well-equipped. He's not going to be vulnerable. He's not going to feel dependent on God anymore. Many wives also is actually about protection. Like we would like to think, like, oh, oh, he shouldn't acquire many wives because he should only have one. Obviously, that's the, 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 the God's design and it is God's design and clearly demonstrated as God's design in Scripture that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's what his ideal would be for his kings. But he's saying, if you're going to have multiple wives, don't have too many. Again, this is what God will permit versus what God's ideal is. He's going to permit him to have multiple wives, but he says, don't have too many. Why? Because his heart may turn away. If he's acquiring wives, he's acquiring treaties. Again, he's acquiring peace between these other nations. And so he's going to be marrying women from foreign nations who then might turn his heart away. They might lead him to go worship a foreign god. Because things might be going badly in the nation. He might have some problem. And then my friend go, you know, well, when my father had problems, he always used to turn to this Baal god and, and make sacrifices. And, and he, it worked. And so then the king might go, well, that's actually a good idea. Let's try something out. And his heart's going to turn away. And lastly, silver and gold, which is, again, about security, protection, provision. He shouldn't acquire too much to where, again, he's not dependent on God. He needs to remain dependent on God. Israel was always meant to be dependent on God. We are meant to be dependent on God. When we put too many things between us and God build up our security to where we no longer feel like we need him anymore, there's probably something we need to change because we should remain dependent on him. Might need to give some of that away. The king also has to write a copy of the law. He actually had to take, this this would be the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and write his own copy. He would take a copy of it and then write his own copy by hand, which then had to be checked and be graded by the Levitical priests. It'd be approved by the Levitical priests. They would take it, get their red pen out and mark it up. Try again. He had to be in submission to that and to have his own copy and then read it all the days of his life. Right? If you did that, you'd have a pretty good understanding of, of God's word. If you wrote your own copy and then read it all the time, you're going to know God's word pretty well. That's what they wanted the king to do. And he had to learn to fear Yahweh and to remain humble. He had to recognize his place. He should not get too uh, proud or too high and mighty. If they're going to have a king, this is how the king should be. And this is instructive for us as well, right? We too should, we should live like kings as God designed. We should be remain dependent on him for protection and provision. We should study God's word that we might know him more, gain in wisdom and obey him better. And we should remain humble and learn to fear God. We'll look lastly here at verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. So the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They don't heed his warnings. And, and they already made up their minds, right? It's obvious. They came to him with, with this request. They weren't saying, you know, Samuel, you, your sons are corrupt. And, and so we need new judges or something. Should we get a king? Like they weren't coming to him for advice. They came with an agenda. Your sons are corrupt. Therefore, give us a king. And then Samuel gives them this warning. Again, they're not open to hearing it. They're not open to hearing his reasons why they might not want a king. No, they know what they want from the beginning. They're going to listen to his lecture, and then they're going to keep demanding the same thing. They've already made their minds up. And so often, that's how we come to God in prayer. We often come to God in prayer with our own minds made up about what's best for us. About God, like, you need to work this situation out the way that I want. It's obvious it's best. It's obvious it's what I need. Instead of being open to him and going, God, I'm open to what you run on do in the situation. I'm in trouble or this isn't going well or I'm not feeling good about this. God, show me what you want for me. So often we go in with like these men with our minds made up about what God would want for us or what we want regardless of what God wants sometimes. The people explain what they hope a king will do for them. They hope that they'll bring about justice for the people. And that may have been a genuine response to Samuel's sons and their injustice in taking bribes. But it may have also been that, that these men were simply on the wrong side of those judgments. And it, it, can, be an easy, it can be easy to call a, a decision we don't like unjust, even if it isn't. Right? If you've ever watched sports with someone who's a fan of the team that is playing, you know that it's easy to see two things, the same thing, two different ways, depending on what you want the outcome to be. Oh, that was definitely a catch. That was definitely a catch. Are you kidding? No, that was definitely, he didn't catch it. Look, he didn't maintain possession to the ground. You know, all those kind of things. Depending on who you're rooting for, you can see it very differently. And that might be simply all that was going on here. But they say they want justice for the people. They say they want the king to fight for the people. They want a king who will be a strong military leader. And again, perhaps they're feeling vulnerable. Perhaps the Philistines are beginning to press on their borders again, and they're feeling vulnerable. They want a king to build up a strong military. And so Samuel takes this message back to Yahweh in prayer. He's aware that God knew everything that was happening, but he still told him, right? He says, he, it, it, the passage actually says he, he whispered it in the ear of Yahweh. He told it in, in God's ear, which obviously is metaphorical, but it's instructive for us. And what, how Samuel's processing all of this with God, he's actually bringing it to him, even though he knows, it's not like Samuel's theology was bad. He knows that God knows everything, but he still tells him. He still goes through this process of talking about it to God and telling him, hey, you believe this is what happened. Talks to him about it because he wants to process it. He wants God to speak to him about it. And prayer helps us to process the things that happen to us. It's important for us to tell God about it, even though he already knows. 
and what Yahweh tells Samuel is to obey them. Now, he'd already he'd made provisions for this eventuality. Samuel had warned them. But God tells them, let them do it anyway. It's not what he wants for them, but he'll let them do it. And so Samuel tells them, go every man to his city. He's beginning the process of selecting uh, a king. He tells them, go, go home, go to your cities, and I'll start this process. I'll get it rolling on, we'll get you a king. And what we see here is a very practical, very obvious situation in which we see the difference between God's perfect will and his permissive will. What they're acting in is within God's permissive will. It's not as though they're doing something that God will not allow them to do. He's allowing them to do it. You can have a king. He even gives them the best way to have a king. If you're going to have a king, have him be, do these things. Right? Have him not acquire all these things. Let him have him write a copy of the law. Have him do all these things. But he is telling him specifically, if you want to do this, here's how to do this. But I don't want you to do it. He doesn't want them to do it, but he's going to allow them to do it. That's per God's permissive will. Even telling them the best way to do the wrong thing. It's not his perfect will. His perfect will is them to remain with God being their king, stay with the system of judges and the priests, but they want a king, you can do it. But notice how dangerous it is that they're going to get what they want, but it's not what's best for them. They're going to regret it, and then God's not going to change it for them. He's not going to just immediately change it for them. And we face similar situations in our lives in which we might be allowed to do something. God might permit us to do something that is not what's best for us, and we might have to deal with those consequences. It doesn't change the fact that he loves us. He, he loves Israel. He had rescued them out of Egypt just that as God rescued us out of our sin, saved us by the power of Jesus' blood and atoning for our sin, that if we accept the forgiveness that he offers us, we can have the Holy Spirit. We can be forgiven from our sins, cleansed, covered in his righteousness that we can go and live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. None of that changes, no matter what other decisions we make. If we choose to live outside of God's perfect will and in his permissive will, but we have to deal with those consequences here on earth, just as the Israelites are going to have to. So how do we know, right? This situation was pretty obvious. They, God, God made it very clear to them what his perfect will is versus his permissive will. But how do we today know the difference? Well, you can seek God in prayer. That's an easy number one way to do it. Just bring it to him and say with an open heart, open mind of saying, God, I, 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 this is what I think I want. But if it's not what you want, then show me what you want. Because here's what I think I want. But if it's not what you want from me, it seems like a good thing to me. But show me what you want from me. You can also seek God's word, search his word for wisdom on these things and talk to brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are mature in Christ who can give you wise counsel, they might be able to speak to you as well. But I'll also give you kind of a litmus test for living in God's will because living in God's perfect will is often, often involves sacrifice. It often involves giving up what you want. Or even giving up your rights, like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians when we went through that, path, that, that book. It involves sacrifice. It can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. 
It often involves discomfort. It involves remaining vulnerable, the way that God talks about the king to the kings. Like they, they have to remain vulnerable, they have to remain dependent on him. Oftentimes, that's what living in God's perfect will includes. It can often include going to new places, doing new things, stepping out in faith, and trying something you've never done before because God is calling you to it. And bottom line, it involves living like Jesus. When we look at Jesus' human life, the time he spent on earth, that is living a perfect life, right? He lived a perfect, sinless life, always obeying the Father, always doing what he called him to do. So we can look to him as our example of what does it look like to live in God's perfect will. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, understand that when people reject the gospel, they are rejecting God and not you. It can be a great comfort and give us great courage in actually sharing the gospel when we recognize that, that it's not about us. And just because someone says no, just because someone slams the door in our face, whatever, it's not about us, it's about God. They're not rejecting us, they're rejecting God. Number two, live like a king. Live like a king the way that God called them to do it. Trust in God's provision and protection, study his word, and remain humble. And then lastly, seek God's perfect will for your life. Not just what he'll allow, not his permissive will, but his perfect will. What he wants for you ideally. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And we'll take communion together in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. And then we'll sing one closing song. After that, we'll have a prayer team available right up here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. You can just walk on up. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can read these, uh, this account of Israel's request for a king and, and the terrible mistake they made in, in, not, in rejecting you as their king and in living outside of your perfect will. And I pray that for us, we would seek what you want for us most. Not what we want, but what you want, God. We thank you for all that you've given us, and most especially for Jesus. And it's in his blessed name we pray. Amen.